So I pivoted, realizing that I was going to either go take a job at a, a marketing or an advertising company and I'd be miserable because I'm not that brain type. So I'll stay up all night in order to do that. It's, it's great. Hi, everybody, and welcome to How Music Charts, the podcast where we explore the dance between interpreting data and making creative decisions in the music business every day. I'm your co-host, Jason, and you'll hear from our co-host, Rutger, very, very soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help professionals leverage the power of music. Any opinions or views expressed by our guests or the co-hosts on this podcast are his or hers alone and do not in any way constitute the opinions or views of any company he or she works for. To preserve a tone of earnest dialogue and protect our guests, we will refrain from from using names of any kind, personal, company, or otherwise, unless our guests have granted us explicit permission to do so. At How Music Charts, we try to showcase those pushing the edge of music and data, and today we talk with Joel T. Jordan, founder and president at Sync Tank. Headquartered in London with offices in New York and Los Angeles, Sync Tank offers a range of cloud-based SaaS solutions for managing digital entertainment assets, intellectual property, metadata, and royalties. Getting his start in the music industry at the ripe age of 13, Jordan started one of the hardcore punk scene's seminal labels, Watermark Records, with his brother Jason in 1991. It was there in New Jersey where the visually oriented Jordan began his career as an art director, which eventually led him to co-found the creative design firm Earth Program in New York City, where he served as lead designer and creative director from 1996 to 2008. It was then when Jordan founded Sync Tank, where, as a 2018 Pop Disciple interview describes, Sync Tank serves over 150 high-profile clients, including Disney Music, 20th Century Fox, Reservoir Media, Spirit Music Group, Concord Music, BT Sport, Red Bull Media House, Primary Wave, and Pure Music. In part one of this two-part episode, we get into Jordan's punk beginnings in the business and weave a narrative through the world of music licensing that translates his punk rock do-it-yourself ethos into a sector with surprisingly similar DNA, technology. So without further ado, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Joel T. Jordan. I wanted to dive into your background a little bit, um, just like origin story. How did you get into the music industry and how did you end up starting a SaaS company in music sync and assets management while your twin brother is SVP of A&R at Republic? Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, he was, yeah, um, one of his many positions over the the years. But essentially, he's a been a professional A and R guy for the last I don't know twenty five years since we were older teenagers. He he was one of the youngest A and R guys hired at Columbia back when everybody was trying to sign punk bands. If you remember that in the <laughs> early nineties, and and my brother and I had founded a very popular hardcore punk label out of my parents' basement in South Jersey called Watermark. And all of these seminal bands and collectible records came out through that label, um, which is how I got my start in graphic design and, and uh, art direction. And so Jason was the mastermind behind signing the acts, and I was the mastermind behind the everything else, I guess. And um, he uh, basically got a career as a result of that um, because all the bands imploded when the labels started coming to them. And um, they were like, well, shit, we just hired Jason, you know? And so that was the beginning of his, his track on A&R. And, um, you know, in, in me doing my commercial art um, career of, of doing, um, you know, graphic design for record covers and art direction for, for photo shoots and video commissioning and so on, this was all extensions out of how we got into the record business, which was this fan label that we created, um, which was really kind of our friends' bands that were incredible bands, but had no infrastructure, no ability to actually put anything out. And so 
we really just scraped together about 800 bucks when we were, I don't know, 14 years old, 13 years old, something around there. And um, yeah, and we put out our first record and it was terrible. Um, but you know, we learned a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff from selling records for $3 postpaid. And, um, and we basically managed to reinvest all that money over the years into other records that got more and more sophisticated. Um, by the end of the, 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 um, track that we had, um, you know, we were one of the leading, um, punk and hardcore labels just strictly because of the, the presentation, the marketing and stuff was just so, um, slick and ahead of its time. And um, I just learned on my feet how to how to put this stuff together. And it was also um, dovetailed with like the the um, the uh, emergence of, of desktop publishing. So lo and behold, I went from, you know, cut and paste shooting positives and Ruby lift and chart, you know, graph paper and stuff to being on the tip of the ice, you know, the tip of the wave, basically the tip of the spear when um, desktop publishing was exploding. And so. I moved to New York to be around my brother because he was already living in New York City. I had, I had gone to school in Japan um, for a semester or so and um, came back and realized I was not going to be able to advance my career in Philadelphia where we were living at the time. And so I moved up to New York City to be with my brother and brought about five of my friends along and we we moved into a loft in Chelsea. And, um, the you know, that was six years of, of living and learning, um, running a record label. Um, uh, doing graphic design for every other record label in New York City because nobody had like that that formalized role yet, um, and and basically you know doing getting your hands into everything from from art direction to actually making records and producing events and all this large scale stuff that you know led to Jason signing you know Josh Wink and King Brit and Armin Van Helden and all these luminary you know dance producers that were you know completely recognized at the time um, in the underground but then now are you know completely household names for that, that, that genre. Um, so yeah, it, it all like worked together, you know, and Jason came up and gave us a lot of credibility. And, um, that's the, the long story of how I got into the music industry, but how did I actually start the SAS company? Was the part two of the question? Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> after years and years and years of doing graphic design, I realized I was never going to make any money unless I teamed up with other people. And, and this was after everybody had left, the uh, first iteration of Earth Program, which was our graphic design collective and our production company and so on, and started their own companies or became successful designers in motion graphics and things like that. And I was longing for the days when we could all pool our resources and, and actually, you know, be the good guys, be the bad guys and help support each other. But, you know, it's hard to find business partners that um, sort of agree with you on everything or have the late, the at least the, the um, same kind of... Um, willingness or or uh, aptitude or even attitude to um try and win and so um without strength in numbers it's pretty hard to win on as an individual and um so i pivoted realizing that i was gonna either go take a job at a, a marketing or an advertising company and i'd be miserable because i'm not that brain type um i can't go to an office every day and nine to five doesn't suit my suit me at all and i make the world fit my needs basically so um so i'll stay up all night in order to do that it's it's great but um, the uh, point of the matter was I was like, oh, I have this record collection, right? So we have signed over 20 years, thousands of recordings and, and publishing at the same time, because that's what we've been doing is enabling writers to do what they needed to do and putting out killer records that have awesome artwork and have a story to tell so that they have true value. Um, and then what we would do is we'd try and get those things synchronized, right? We'd try and get them licensed within a video game or an app or a TV show or a movie if we were lucky. 
Um, and, and really that was the realization of, wow, records are cool and they're great collectible items that people can really hold in their hands and love. But if our true goal is to get records heard, then we should probably go for a wider audience. And the wider audience was through film and TV and all those other avenues I just said. Um, we got some of our first syncs. Um, we were first, um, one of the first in, in video games. We were on um, Gran Turismo, the first version. I'm playing plenty PlayStation back in 1995, I think, 1996 nice. somewhere. I don't even remember what year it was, but I do remember it was a huge check and I've never seen another, another check like that ever. <laughs> Cause it was based on a million video games sold and like the mechanical rate was like seven cents a record or 13 cents a record, I think. And so it was just, the math was insane. And I was like, Oh, and it never happened again. Like I said, but um, <laughs> that's a great start though. You're like, man, this was, business is awesome. I was like, this kills, man. Why am I doing, why am I not doing this all the time? So that was really, yeah, it was, I was like, why am I not doing this all the time? Right. So that was what my focus was, was making connections, trying to sell, rather than selling to thousands of people doing marketing plans, doing very targeted market plans to try to sell to individuals, which were the gatekeepers to TV shows and the films and stuff that I had liked or wanted to be involved with. And we started getting syncs and like, we had a sync in Lost, which is like incredible. It's like licensing music to Star Wars. It never happens. It's just, they have their own writers and they have their own, we just had the right track for the right purpose and got there first. And this is to my point, it was, I was doing this job every single day, day in and day out, trying to market my catalog and trying to be poignant about it and trying to be really, um, you know, not create extra work or be sloppy about it. And the tools that were available at the time were, well, you have your spreadsheet for your rights and you have your iTunes for your music MP3 collection and you have Dropbox or WeTransfer or you send it, I think was what I was using. Um, and then you have MailChimp for more sophisticated mail out. So you know who opened it, but you don't know who clicked it or what they did after that. So it was all this disjointed things that I was doing every single day and I was doing it ad hoc. So it was like creating a new task every single time I finished the last task. So rather than putting it um, all in a line, which nobody had done yet, I was like, well, if I had just connected this thing with this thing and this thing and this thing, and I put it on the cloud rather than on my computer, which was the other thing I was carrying drives around and shit, which, you know, people lament about, but it was the truth. Um, and, you know, we're talking about, um, this is 2000 and for 2005 so the you know youtube just came out if you're thinking about what year it was so you, facebook wasn't widely adopted until 2007 2006 so we're really early days right and i was trying to communicate the stuff that people were used to using um you know like promo mailers and dj kind of mass mailing software and stuff like that which was ineffective for trying to target for sync because everything looked like um an oversell or, or something like that like a big big news release or whatever and i wanted to be very very subtle about it so rather than um using all these disparate tools i called my friend who was the bassist in my punk band in college and i said hey i understand you're a a full stack web developer now and, and we had worked together at a record label about a year previously and i said i'm really frustrated with the way that i'm actually presenting my catalog i have no really way to to show people the vastness and the value that i've built over the last 20 years without sending them all over the internet. I was sending people to, you know, links here and links there and, and stuff that really didn't tell my story or kind of reinforce my brand. Um, so I was overwhelming people with emails and doing all the amateur shit that people do when they're learning, right? Um, and I said, there's gotta be a better way because also my my writers are hassling me every day. What, am, what are you doing for me? What am I, when am I gonna get a sync? What am I gonna, this and that? And you have to show your work. Um, so that creates another problem. Like I have to write everything down. Um, so do a, what rights do I have? Can I do stuff with it? Um, what can I do with it? Um, 
who did I communicate with and when and for what purpose? So there's an entire funnel here, right? There's an entire story to tell. And so that's when I called my buddy and was like, I have to build a website for my stuff. And it was a really basic idea. I just wanted to build pages for each release and have a way to share it. Mm-hmm. And in from there on out, it started, I started looking at like, you know, um, DSPs and things that were already online, like Bport and, and other, um, you know, obvious um, solutions, production music catalogs that were out that just needed, you know, more sophisticated looks and, and more modern um, ways to integrate with the, engage with the catalog. And so I created something that looked really cool because I was a graphic designer, if you remember, and I just stayed out of the way of my friend who was a brilliant programmer, but not a graphic designer. And so we just were like working all night doing our stuff. And out of it came the first version of, of Sync Tank, which was run strictly for my own catalog, which is Earth Program. And you can see that at earthprogram.com. And that's basically all of the music that we've signed over the last 20 years, 25 years. And suddenly doing the same work through this platform changed everything. It was um, measurable. I could see who clicked and who didn't click. Um, I hooked in my mailing list, so I wasn't jumping over to another program. I kept all my assets in one place. Everything lived online where I changed something, it changed, everybody could see the same the same stuff, whether it was me or 10 people. But what the point was is it's a force multiplier because it was all of the things that I was doing in my pocket um, and mobile and, and uh, measurable and recordable. And so I had a paper trail of every click I did, every click everybody else did. Did this person open my stuff? Do they not? Do they listen? Do they not? Do they download? Do they not? So it came from a cer- certain just need to be able to pitch. And that was from learning from running a record label for 25 years that this job is really hard unless you have many hands doing the work. Um, I don't have that luxury of hiring anybody. So I was like, how do you work as an individual, but be able to do the the force of five people? Um, And that's just work smart. Um, And that was the impetus of it all. And and how it became a business is another link through the story chain, but you know, that was the idea of, of how it became a program. Right. And realizing that my, my little problem was actually a bigger problem than I understood because when I went out to show it to people, they were like, wait, your music, it's pretty good, but what is this thing? You know, the package that it came in is way cool. And um, I was like, Oh, all right. I didn't think about it like that. I assumed that all these companies had some dude like me or some girl like me, that was thinking about these problems and they did to an extent, but they're using all this, the tools I had, which was spreadsheets, MailChimp, Dropbox, um, email and whatever else I was using. Mm -hmm. Um, and a CRM of some sort. Uh, so in going into the, the, the places and, and understanding that they feel the same pain, um, but maybe more, um, was really the aha moment. And I was like, holy shit, you know, so I get to work with all these awesome catalogs, but I don't actually have to get involved in the rights of working with all these catalogs um, and become a helper business and become somebody that actually people want around and not something that I'm selling them stuff that they don't need. That's really good. So um, in a way that like we're helper business chart metrics, a helper business too. So it's non-competitive, you know, it's something like um, you're in the same way in the same boat as me, where I feel like I'm a Levi Strauss where I'm making belts and pickaxes and dungarees and tents and I'm pointing people to the hills and going, there's gold, there's gold, <laughs> you know? So, you know, I'm not directly benefiting from gold mining only from the, the selling of all the equipment that involves for gold mining. Right. And you guys are too. And that's really what being a helper business is because it's, it's, it's a good feeling to have that kind of ability to help, um, you know, the smallest guys and the biggest guys, and they're all in the same race. 
You know, they just all need really good cars. Do you think your background in graphic design um, separates you in some way from other tech founders? I'm not one of those tech founders that thinks they can do everything. I'm not like a CEO type that that can balance a P&L and, and do all that stuff. I didn't come with an MBA. My brain is very um, nonlinear. It's a creative type. Um, I jump from one thing to another and to another and to another. And I see things from 100 feet above, basically, and how they all connect. And I can inspire people to, to help me get there. Um, I don't think I know everything. I do not know everything, in fact. But I do know what I do know, and that is what a program should look like, how it should feel, um, what people want to see, what they need to see, and what logical order that goes in. And that comes from doing thousands of record covers and going, people read from left to right, people look at stuff like this, they you know turn pages like that. Um, it's the storytelling you know, art. Um, so UX and UI is completely... Um, a, a, at the forefront of everything we do um, is design led because the people that are using your program are artists as well. You know, they're, they're not stupid. They need something that's completely um, helps them get to the point, get that job done and get on to the next thing because you know, that's the point of the thing. It's not meandering through uh, like my brain sometimes meanders. It doesn't work one, two, three, but it is about getting to the point. And so graphic design helps logically um, work out, what comes one, what comes two, what comes three, what comes four, and why? Um, and maybe there's an answer to, you know, there's always a ubiquitous an or ambiguous answer, sorry. Um, there's always some ambiguity and it's subjective, but I think my background in graphic design and, um, you know, laying out a blank page and starting with a blank page definitely separates how I envisage the end product and how we can get there. Um, so some people start, you know, with, with the question. And sometimes I start with the answer, you know, so um, if that makes sense, it's, it's like, you can totally, I can sometimes see the, the answer before I know how to get there. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and tying it all together takes a team. So that's where I'm going, Hey, I think I have a picture here. How do we paint this picture? And I'm the kind of guy that paints out the lines and, and, and gets sloppy and things. And it's important to have people that can do um, process and discipline and structure and can compliment you as a creator because, you know, doing it yourself doesn't mean doing it alone. And you don't have to bash your head against the wall trying to figure out every answer. And it takes a lot of, you know, stuffing your ego in your pocket to bite your lip and, and understand that there are people that are way better than the stuff than you are. And I learned that pretty early, like took the CEO stripes off my sleeves pretty quickly <laughs> and realized that I wasn't that guy, you know, and uh -huh. founders, founders don't have to run everything. They can be founders um, and they can be the creative talent, which is what I look at myself as um, in this company as, as the as the, the guy that came up with the first idea. But that's not the last idea mm -hmm. um, and it's not the, the best idea. It's just became the, the thing that sparked it all. So a lot of people no sync tank through sync blog mm. but can you explain exactly what sync sync tank does um sure. in a practical sense and what need it fills for each side of the mm. synchronization relationship yeah without a doubt so it initially started with rights um holders okay so that's people that own rights could be a record label could be an artist a composer a production music company a record label music publishing company distributors anybody that has control of rights um to do whatever they wanted to know um, the story about what they have with those rights so um what we offer them is the 
the structure through which they can take all of those spreadsheets and make some some sense out of it. We build them rooms for each one of those uh, pieces of data. So an album will now have a place to live. Uh, a track will have a place to live with its all its own unique data that goes with that. Whereas before you might have a pile of MP3s and then some spreadsheet that goes with that over here. There's no real way to work with that. So we take all of the, the assets and all the data and make it interactive for rights holders so that they can search through their piles of music, um, quickly playlist stuff, share it with whomever they need to, pitch it to um, mail, uh, you know, mail contacts or groups, hook it up through CRMs to determine how their sales are going. We have uh, um, built-in licensing capabilities as well. So any of the things that typically a human being wouldn't want to do or isn't manually intensive or doesn't make any sense to do um, because it would be too expensive um, to do manually, the computer can deal with all these things. So from a rights management or from a rights holder perspective, we basically give them the power to amplify the work they're already doing, which is you know searching, pitching, management, licensing, um, marketing the catalog. From a rights, whole, from a rights buyer's perspective, that is um, the demand side, if you will, those are broadcasters. Those are the, you know, the big um, Hollywood studios, um, uh, TV stations, broadcasters, and so on that are using rights. And they also own their own rights because, you know, like you look at networks, they're publishers too. They, they um, compile music. Netflix is a publisher. You know, anybody that buys music is a publisher. Um, so they have um, the music that they use internally that they own. And they might not even own, know what they own or they might have a remit to, to use what they own. Um, but they license in music, certainly, and then they have to show who they use the music with what cut and with what program. So on that side, it's about compliance um, on rights uh, uh, compliance. So what rights do we use against what program? Um, who do we pay? Do we have to generate a cue sheet. Where do we have to send it? All of that stuff involves, you know, breaks in a chain. If you really look at it, there's always a possibility that something's going to break the computer allows human beings to just flight check this stuff. Like this was done and it goes to the next step. And yeah, I signed off on it next step. So we give control mechanisms for these things to get to transmission stages where we know that all the boxes are checked, all the licenses are cleared. That's what we offer from the, from the buy side. And um, <clears throat> naturally the two sides communicate. And so, you know, you can have syndication of the buyer and sell side and you can have, um, you know, uh, the studios that that are by are pulling in stuff and using it alongside the materials that they own and so the way that our search engines work it allows them to find things based on all of the data points that they have um, it could be machine um, data that they've or data from machines that they've retired as a result of using sync tank because what we try to do is when we work with these large companies is um, get the data off those old machines um, that are typically living in a mainframe in a closet somewhere and um and get it onto the cloud and get it into sync tank because we're really it's not just about sync rights it's about all rights and about what can you do with your catalog commercially so if we work with um, warner music group for instance and one of the projects we created was a way for them to understand what they can do with their catalog commercially from wherever they're standing in the world so if you're in you know italy and you want to look up the the subsection of the catalog that you can work with for this purpose in that territory then it will pull up all that, you know, all those catalogs. Um, and then you can narrow it down by the sub catalogs or by the mood or by the tempo or by the charts, you know, the chart position or any of the other data that points that we pull in so that these searches are actually, you know, holistic views of their catalog um, and then enables them to understand, can I sync this? Can I put this in a compilation? Can I put it up? Can I do nothing with it? You know, there could be restrictions that they don't know. 
And so we've taken all those rules and challenges and, and, um, and uh, created all of these, you know, separate boxes of music that are completely um, interactive based on what rights you have and, you know, what login you have and, and uh, you know, what filters you're hitting exactly. Um, so you might get down to the one flute track that you have rights for in Czech Republic with, uh, you know, that's this tempo, you know, or this key. And um, that's really kind of very insane given that, you know, there's so many layers of data and so many um, things that change constantly, but we're um, tied in so that all the data, data is dynamic. Um, we're, you're getting chart data. Um, we can uh, pull in sales data. We can pull in contract data, any kind of th data that helps weigh and surface assets. And when I say assets, I mean digital media. I don't mean money or finances, but a lot of these conversations have moved from the talking to the sync and licensing team to talking to the CFOs. So all of the future of what sync tank has become is financial um, controls as well. So we um, just last or two years ago, we acquired um, a royalty processing system from Pure Music, which is one of the leading independent music publishing companies in the world. And they had developed this amazing technology called Iris over the past seven or eight years. And we basically acquired it and refactored it. And we've started rolling out some projects with various clients and some studios. And it's really, really fast for, for processing tons and tons of, of lines of, of sales data that come in from the, the DSPs or from the publishers and um, allows, you know, capabilities that would take weekends or weeks to do, to do in, in, in matters of minutes. So we've moved completely from just the money out, the money inside, which is the, you know, the selling, you know, the process of selling, the marketing, the, the, what can you do and into the money inside or the money outside, which is, uh, you know, how do we, make sense of the money we made and who do we pay it to? Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that's from soup to nuts, really what you need, um, in a, in a perfect world. So all of this stuff communicates with each other. It's all API driven. Everything is very lightweight and fast. And, and so, you know, what we're offering people is, as these large companies or any company is that we move like a speedboat, you know, we get in there and we understand stuff. And since I'm a music guy, it's not like talking to some random person that doesn't understand the problem. You know, I'm, I'm completely there and I'm like, Oh, and you know, we actually can have a conversation about publishing or, you know, the actual ins and outs of a commercial deal, because I'm the guy that does that, you know, also <laughs> with my other hat on. Um, but you know, my label is more, more of an expensive hobby these days because this, uh, this whole software thing has been my life for the last 10 years. And it's, it's got a reason to exist beyond me. And there's an entire team that exists in, in UK and hi guys and girls. Um, and there's a team of, of dedicated programmers and developers that are in um, Slovakia. So, you know, we're really, uh, we're really a tight team and, and we're growing this thing to include so many um, prongs to it that I never could have imagined even five years ago it would be doing you know, financial stuff. This is really out of the box kind of things that I would never expect um, in millionaires, but things happen, you know, so when you move on, they, they get, they get, uh, things get attached to it by, by, by uh, the good that you do, I guess. And it's a good thing that Think Tank is growing because I'm looking at uh, the global music report from 2019. This is from IFPI. And so looking at like a 30,000 foot view of, of you know the sector of of music licensing, 
Looks like it <clears throat> grew 5.8% since uh, the year prior, which is the only other sector besides streaming to grow at all. Um, everything else kind of went down. So yay. That's yeah. Good yeah. Um, what did you say? 5.8? I thought it was 2.4 or something in your 2020 report. In your, so 5.8 uh, increase for the synchronization revenue got it. Um, sector. But yeah, you're right. 2.4. Uh, from overall uh, 2019 recorded music revenue. Yeah, I mean that's really pretty good, but it can be way bigger. I mean, you just <laughs> yeah. they need tools, and that's where we're here for to go. Look, we made a shovel. The shovel's really wide, and um, you can employ my shovel. <laughs> and that's really what I'm selling is how do you get through your pile, right? How do you get through all this stuff and filter out the things that are important to that team or this team or this workflow or that workflow? Yeah. And but that growth is is amazing news, man. I mean that's that shows that that. Sync is an important part of anybody's career. Um, it should be something that people are focused on and actually thinking about when they're writing songs. And if they're not, then why not? <laughs> you know, um, because it can, it goes hand in hand with an album release or any release these days. There's no album releases, but you know, any trap that tr track that drops that has a good coinciding sync, it's like magic. Um, you know, it propels it. Um, some things that are have no value suddenly have entire values just by the connotations of the scenes that they're put in. Right. Um, so yeah. um, some songs have had sleeper hits. My daughter is singing songs that I've heard only in the movie. Um, what was this one that I, um, Kissing Booth too. And I only heard this song because my daughter was dancing around to it outside, knew every lyric to it. And it's by Walk the Moon, the guys that made that um, Shut Up and Dance With Me, right? This yeah. song kicks the shit out of that song. But, you know, so I don't know how the world works or how the, the stuff works, but now I'm into that song. So, you know, and it's strictly because of some sync, you know, in a movie. And I didn't actually, I don't know how it moved the needle. That was one of the things I wanted to see um, to look at, look at the data and chart metrics and take a look at what happened before and after that song, after that movie came out, because just me noticing it and I'm like in my mid forties, um, it must be that, you know, the teeny boppers picked up on it and the Gen Zers picked up on it and, and it's got a life on its own beyond the pop charts. Cause it's not not on the charts as far as I know it. Yeah. So about an artist's point of view, mm. you know, when, when we're in this world, how so obviously, you know, if an artist can make money from a sync, it's great. Yeah. You, from their perspective, since you have, you know, such direct experience with, you know, artists and songwriters themselves, do you feel like it's more of a brand and like audience development tactic, you know, from an artist perspective? Um and how do you think it's the best for an emerging artist, let's say, who, you know, doesn't command, you know, the attention of, you know, millions and millions of people right off the bat? How can that kind of artist kind of look at sync licensing as an opportunity for career growth? Yeah, I mean, it's a, another tool. It's another marketing channel, isn't it? I mean, I wouldn't expect you to come out of the box and, and immediately com commanding $50,000 syncs and things like that. It's the reality is that you're going to get nothing or next to nothing. And I always say get next to nothing and never give it away for free because that just devalues everything and everybody's attempts to value, to create value in this chain. So um, when somebody says you'll do it for exposure or whatever, it's like, Oh, well, my rent isn't exposure. It doesn't, you know, it's not exactly, you know, based on exposure. So what you can do is if you can, if you're going to take that view is yeah, it's a, thing that you then go out and you you beat your chest and you talk about the album you talk about the release you talk about the other things that are coinciding with that sync because the sync isn't the end of the story that's just like another thing you know um it helps to get a little bit of money in but and it's help with your morale but it shouldn't be the entire focus of your career because the syncs happen 
and then they're gone and then they happen again. And you're like, wait, and there's no rhyme or reason to how it happens other than you have a good licensing department or somebody, or you have good music in the first place. <laughs> that's the most important thing is make good music that sounds good and recorded very, very well. Um, because otherwise you have no chance. Um, the song comes first. Um, the people that are listening to your song are the, are, are that you're selling to are the most important um, people that you're selling to. So you're, um, there's going to be a lot of things um, that are codependent or interdependent on why a sync is picked or why a song is chosen. And a lot of it has to do with, with unfortunately popularity and rising in charts and whether you're on a playlist or not on a playlist, it's all the new reality. It's like the same thing. Um, you would have never been synced 20 years ago if you didn't have a killer CD out, you know, that sold a million because nobody was taking chances on, on little artists. And, um, and if they were, it was the same damn thing. It was, here's a thousand bucks and get out of my face. Um, so you can't really expect it to be um, an income maker initially um, until you get to the point where either you're doing it every week, which is a possibility. Some people focus on sync as a career. And that's great. And you just got to go and network. You got to go and be a good guy, a good girl and good person to everybody um, and just be cool. You know, and that's how people sell stuff. Right. You know, and you're selling your music, you're selling your your um, your your attitude, your, your good attitude. Um, but, you know, it's all dependent on who you work with. So, like I said before, doing it yourself does not mean doing it alone. So artists need to link up with services, with with companies that offer things, because getting noticed is almost next to impossible unless you're getting noticed alongside somebody else that already has value or that you're already in a club that is noticed or known. So finding a sync agent, finding, you know, even somebody that can pitch and place your music and then does an admin deal if it's placed, that's a place to start. And a lot of um, songwriters do that simply because um, once you get that first sync, then you have a story to tell. And then you have that thing that goes on the playlist um, pitching thing that goes out from the distributor and, and you creates this big feedback loop of value. So whether it's the playlist first or this thing first or that thing first, it's all about the storytelling and why it matters and why the brand should give, give a crap about it or why the pro the producer should notice, um, will it add value to their production or is it just the right song? You know, it could just be that it's, you got there first and you have the right song and that's happens all the time too. But you can't be everywhere at once. You can't spend your entire day obsessing over synchronization because it's just one aspect of the career. Um, so if you have a team and you're looking at your business, your career as a business, then you will have a sync person and you will have a, just like you'll have a manager, just like you'll have an accountant. Or if you're just starting out, you're going to do all these things and you're going to realize where you're good and where you need help. And just like I did, um, I knew I was good at some things, but not at everything. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I think strengthening team bonds and team binds is is really kind of a better way to approach um, synchronization, get get noticed by being part of a pool of artists. So what I've done with my friends, for instance, is through my little Earth program site is pooled them all together. And we they're incredible creators that are um, very you know prolific, but don't necessarily have business chops or don't necessarily know the right people to get. Um, through that that gate of 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 you know it's impossible to get through man there's so much music coming out you know mm -hmm. so being the pre-filter for stuff that's already chosen and then offering that as a as a as a as a way to break through together um breaking through alone is is hard um so the labels should be doing as much as possible for you if not the distributor if not the yourself you know <laughs> 
but it normally boils down to doing it yourself. And that's when you just, you need to have a plan and you need to figure out where you're going to put your energy. Can you walk us through, so you touched on a little bit before how like the, 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 I guess pitch process has changed kind of over the years as, as you've seen it happen. Can you walk us a little bit more through how that pitch process for has changed? Um, yeah, I mean, sure. over the years. <clears throat> Absolutely. I mean, when my brother and I started off, it was, you know, metal cassettes, 90 minute cassettes that had the person's name and hopefully their phone number on it. And that was how we got demo tapes and that's how demo tapes were given away. Um, and those were the best sounding cassettes. And the advice back then on the panels was write your name on the cassette or write your number on the cassette in big, big numbers. Right. Um, and, and not on the cover because they would always get separated. And that was like, not even long ago, dude, this was 1991, probably 1992 when my brother was doing these panels and I was just laughing like no shit, but that's obvious. Right. But same thing today, man, you get MP3s that have no data in them. It just says song mp3 and i'm like who sent me this holy shit like so yeah i mean things have improved but they've not you know in the same place same way it's 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 um you know tools only are as good as the person using the tools they don't actually you know can't do everything for you um they can help you to an certain extent but the, you know give me a hammer and nails doesn't make me a carpenter so just like i'm not a badass guitarist even though i have i have 20 guitars i can still kind of pretend so in marketing, you don't want to pretend you want to be very concise about it and very good about it. And the tools um, have changed to be more sophisticated, but they've never been conjoined until recently. So meaning that <clears throat> you might have, you know, a file sharing mechanism that's like a you send it or a Dropbox or a WeTransfer, um, which is way better than sending somebody MP3s and jamming up their mailbox and and or getting virus scanned or whatever it is. Um, that was the the part two was don't send me MP3s, send me a link. But when you're sending me a link, it's got to be reinforcing your brand in some way, right? Like otherwise I'm just going and I'm thinking about Dropbox or I'm thinking about Box instead. And these uh, tools, I felt, you know, while they're better for not jamming up someone's uh, um, box uh, or mailbox, but then you still have to write them this big long ass letter about how everything kicks ass, right? And like this marketing ploy that's a part of selling and you're sending them PDFs and stuffing up their mailbox with all that shit. So rather than doing that, you know, you can be smart about it and and um, include the link into a simple mail out that doesn't look like a hustle. So I think most of the things that, that are happening now are, are in two categories, completely like news blasts that look completely over the top and are about communicating a message and letting people know that there's um, this X, Y, and Z out there. And those that falls into the traditional, you know, marketing radio promo category kind of thing where everybody's used to seeing a one sheet and used to seeing, you know, why should you care? They're on tour. They did a Pepsi ad. They're, you know, doing this and that and the other thing. Um, and, um, and then there's the subtle pitches, which CRM, CRM systems have enabled, which allow you to kind of track very quickly what's happening and what's not happening in your funnel and who's opening and who's not opening. And, and you can get all the way into what asset you sent to the person and, do they traditionally open my emails and do they not open my emails and start analyzing who you're going to communicate with and who you're not going to communicate with? Because there's probably out of the hundred people you communicate, there's probably two people that give a shit. The rest of them are like, yeah, Joel's cool. I'll open his emails. And then there's like 30 people that are out there. They're like, oh, I'm going to see him soon. I should open this email or whatever it is in their head. But they never download my music or listen to it. So I'm just like, ah, and then you do things with that, like corner them at the next conference or buy them lunch or whatever it is. 
send them flowers. I don't know what the hustle is, but, or what the answer is, but you know, you do something with that data. So I think the, the stuff, the tools that we've gotten are way more sophisticated now, but it comes down to the user, which was what my point was in the first place. If you don't use the tools sophisticated um, in a sophisticated manner, you're just going to look like you're battering through um, noise or you'd be creating noise, you know? And a lot of these people you're communicating with already have so much noise coming at them. So almost the subtle touch is the better touch. Um, and, you know, going um, in force through a channel that's already set up is a lot easier than trying to reach somebody that's already overwhelmed with 20 new connections every day. Um, so getting more sophisticated about pitching is about using the data um, that you have at your fingertips. And, you know, do I keep communicating with somebody that doesn't you know, communicate back. Why? You know, what's the point in that? Well, they don't know that you're nice. They don't know that you're, there's a human behind there until you introduce yourself. And that's what for that's what things like that's this that we're doing right now are for. Um, so, you know, human connections, everything. I don't think throwing a newsletter out is going to do it. Um, and um, um, but also doing some investigation into what you're pitching for, you know, like it's sales. Right. So selling sucks. It's the worst job ever. Um, don't let, you know, it's the hardest job ever. It's not the worst job. It's the hardest job. It's very, very hard. You have to be convincing in your argument. And you only really have the argument that you're making with a music supervisor or somebody listening to your music is whether or not they should open the email or whether they're not, they're not, they should click the damn thing. And that's very low friction. But when you're getting a hundred of them every five minutes, it's, what do you do? And that's what clutter, getting through the noise is about taking people for drinks and letting them know that you're alive and that you, that you don't suck at all. <laughs> um, and then really it's, that's that easy. Um, but look at like, get, um, when you're selling, you're selling to people that want to be sold to, or that need to be, have something that you have, if you don't have it, then they're not going to buy it. So your music has to kick ass in the first place. Cause you know, if you don't have good music and you're talking to people that are music supervisors, there are artists that are filtering out things for their, um, you know, production company or their producers that are depending on them to make good choices to further the um, entire project. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, just like that, it has to be as artistically um, sound and um, overall presented very well and not at all looking desperate or amateur or any of those things because those don't come off well in a selling environment, you know, and this is all about selling. So what I recommend is investigating who you're selling to just put in five minutes and do a little bit of research. Like, um, what is this show about? What is their show's sound? I mean, you can easily look in the credits of any show on Netflix, any show on any terrestrial broadcast and see what the typical sound is, right? Um, you could even use Chartmetric to do that. You could say, go to TuneFind and TuneFind produ produces, publishes all the songs on, on their sound charts for songs that are produced and are placed in TV shows. And I could easily, this is one of the experiments I wanted to run before our chat, but what in the last two weeks was the sound of Netflix or was the sound of, of show on Netflix, you know, and what can I get out of that is I shouldn't pitch to this or I should pitch to this because it's going to fall on fertile ground on rich soil, or it's going to completely miss the mark and there's no point in even communicating with them. Yep. So that's not hard, you know, and that's how we can use data that's available. Um, that just needs um, something like a chart metric to filter through the, the noise and present it in a room where you can actually engage the data in a sensible way. Yeah. Thanks, Joel. 
Thanks. But if you can cut, I did not ask Joel that, to say that. Thank you. <laughs> if you can cut that down to just like he said this, then this, then this, that would be great. Cause I knew that was like a 20 minute answer to like, but it really is. Pitching's gone from like, it's not about uh, the, it's about how you use the tools is yeah. really the answer. Okay. Cause you can really fuck it up with great tools. Yeah. Uh, so I'm glad you mentioned Netflix. So, cause you know, TV, TV and film have been largely kind of separated by language and cultural boundaries in lots of ways, different mm -hmm. you know, people thinking in different ways in different parts of the world. So with a lot of these streaming video on demand platforms like Amazon Prime and like Hulu and Netflix, mm -hmm. how has that changed your world kind of over the years? Well, now I watch Korean, you know, comedies and shit. So that was <laughs> never something that we would get, you know, even five years ago or 10 years ago, I wouldn't have that on my, my cable. So, all right, my cable channels, those are all international productions, you know, and vice versa. All of the stuff that's in English is going to Korea and all over the world. So something that breaks here breaks there as fast. It's not like it takes time for this wave of six months of lag time or years of syndication of, of friends or whatever the show is that goes big in, in China years later because there was a delay in, in cultural adoptance. Um, so I think cultures can actually come together a lot more quickly because you can see the, the sameness and in them because of the visibility of their their programming and what they actually you know what's culturally popular there right so now i can sort of understand a culture a little bit better from what they're producing what's important to them what's resonating in their their society but um also just being exposed to so many new um like just formats and genres and and things like you know um and languages and 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 people and backgrounds and stuff. This is, you know, it opens a worldview. Um, we were really kind of struggling when you have just happy days and and whatever on the TV after school. And that was my life, you know, up until streaming video on demand came out. And then there was just an explosion. I mean, Netflix, the first five years that I was a member was to delivering DVDs to my house. You know, they weren't into shows and original programming or even licensing um things that were or taking chances on things until they went streaming and then they're like shit we need content mm -hmm. and content you know it's an overwhelming amount of content now um you you can see that um you know every time you go on netflix it's just holy crap it's like being back in blockbuster with the you know <laughs> except you're physically not in there but it's just as overwhelming like do we go with a comedy do we go with a you know this is recommended for you that's the the thing that wasn't in blockbuster was you know this is recommended personally for you based on Johnny's manager's algorithm or whatever. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, you know, he might pull out the one that you like every week to be cool for you, but um, you know, this is beyond that and everything, you know, what fucks it up is my kids um, before they share, before we split out our Netflix accounts, um, they, they were watching a ton of real, real like Nickelodeon stuff. So now oh, no. once they pissed in the, the pool, algorithm up, <laughs> yeah, they pissed in the pool. How do you un, how do you get that out? Like, and my Spotify is all fucked up too. There's kids bop in there. And like, do I just have to explode it? I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> but it's like, don't do that. Don't do it. Like, so now it thinks I like, you know, like, I don't know. It's, it's these terrible songs that my son listens to that that's just stuff he hears at birthday parties and things. I, they I should was, have a reset button. Yeah. Or like, <laughs> are you under all the shit that would be normally for people that are under 11? um or, or whatever some kind of like mass update thing but there's got to be if they don't do it i'm gonna have to build the tool man i'm like serious about this it's it's really a, a problem if you've messed up my algorithm what do you do de-algorithm it like you know 
Um, I, I, I listen to I listen to rainstorm sounds when I sleep. And, so and you I too. Think, I think yeah. four out of five of my Spotify daily mixes yeah. are all rainstorms. It's rainstorms, right? Yeah, I did that too, man. When I when I'm sleeping, <laughs> it's like the gentle sounds of nature, and and uh, yeah, it'll be like here's your daily pick. It'll be like Alpha Blondie, Bob Marley, three months in a rainforest, you know, <laughs> and then all this stuff and. You know, but there you go. And and it would be cool if, if the algorithm could tell if it was actually, you know, I guess it can tell if there's musical content, but, you know, maybe that's your thing. Maybe it is like, you know, song, song, 20 minutes of relaxation, song, 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 you know, sleeping, whatever. Um, but, you know, algorithms are, are crazy and they can be fine tuned to, to anybody. Special thanks to Joel Jordan and stay tuned for part two of our conversation with him. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and podcast notes are at blog.chartmetric.com. You can also subscribe there for additional insights delivered to your inbox right after we publish. Follow our thoughts on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at at Chartmetric. That's Chartmetric, no S. That's it for this episode of How Music Charts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Thank you.